Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Nicole Charles, who is the author of the book, Suspicion, Vaccines, Hesitancy, and the Affective Politics of Protection in Barbados, published by Duke University Press. Dr. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And I'm really looking forward to talking about your book, Suspicion. Um, And so generally, we begin with a question about your background. And so the book is about the HPV vaccine and the suspicion it generated in Barbados. Can you tell us about yourself, how you came to write this book, how you became interested in Barbados and um, the politics of vaccines there? Yes. So I guess the seedlings for some of the research that is included in this book were really planted as a teenager, actually growing up in Trinidad, where I first learned about the HPV vaccine through pharmaceutical ads and these were U.S. commercials and they were very seductive you know encouraging young women like myself to tell someone we love that was the phrase that was used about HPV and that someone was my mother who to my surprise was not eager to accept this vaccine but rather quite ambivalent and This perplexed me knowing how health conscious she was. She had never before expressed concern over a vaccine. And as I prepared to go off to Canada, to Montreal, to begin uh, my undergrad studies, she encouraged me to ask questions that mattered to me about this vaccine, about HPV, and to make it a research project. And during my degree, I, I majored in international development with a minor in social studies of medicine and women and gender studies and kind of reading across these overlapping fields, I really began to understand how social and economic relations condition not only politics, I mean, health and wellness are, of course, political, but also 
how they condition scientific knowledge and claims to truth within which health and wellness exists. So I think then and now um, I was and I, I remain curious about this disjuncture between scientific truth claims and the lived experiences and realities of Black and Indigenous and people of color in particular. So I guess what started as a curiosity around my own mother's ambivalence really became a transnational research question over, what is it, more than 15 years of thinking about the politics surrounding the HPV vaccine outside the walls of the institution, but also across various academic institutions and being trained and mentored by folks like M. Jackie Alexander on what it means to map global circuits of power relations. Yeah. That is so interesting how these questions can emerge out of our own um, own lives and experiences, and then they, and then we sit with them for so long as academics, and as you know, to do the research and then you know write the book, it, it takes it takes a long period of time that we're really you know thinking about these these different these different issues, and so um, the issue that you talk about of vaccine hesitancy has certainly been popular in the United States as of late regarding COVID nineteen and the pandemic. Um, Of course, you focus on the HPV vaccine for human papillomavirus, um, which is linked to high rates of cervical cancer. And yet uh, parents were questioning the vaccine against HPV in Barbados, as you just explained. Um, You reframe vaccine hesitancy through this theory of suspicion. Can you tell us about this HPV vaccine and introduce us to your idea of suspicion, which you narrate throughout the book? Yes, so most strains of HPV are asymptomatic, though high-risk strains of of HPV can lead to things like genital warts, cervical cancer, anal cancers, penile cancers, head and neck cancers, and more. So it's certainly not just about cervical cancer, though it is very much marketed as such, especially initially. So Gardasil, which is a vaccine manufactured by pharmaceutical company Merck, was the first vaccine to be approved by the FDA in the early 2000s, 2006, uh, for use in girls and women to target four strains of HPV that account for the largest percent of cervical cancer and genital ward cases in the U.S. And this quadrivalent vaccine is the vaccine that was being offered in Barbados while I was conducting research there between 2015 and 2018. But there are noteworthy differences between the most prevalent high-risk strains of HPV in the Caribbean and those in North America and Europe. So as an example, across populations of Barbadian, Trinidadian, and Jamaican women, it's been shown that it's the HPV strain 45 rather than 16 or 18, which the quadrivalent vaccine targets that is most commonly um, detected among cervical cancer cases, right? So more recently, there's been the development of another HPV vaccine, Gardasil 9, that treats nine strains of the virus, including 
many that are more prominent in places like Barbados. And there definitely is some degree of cross protection, right, with the quadrivalent vaccine. But data supports the value of a more um, accelerated introduction of, of Gardasil 9 in places like Barbados. So this quadrivalent vaccine that was introduced in Barbados in 2014 was done through a national school-based vaccination program for girls. And it was very atypical because unlike the traditional rollout of vaccines, which is done in Barbados by public health nurses in the island's public clinics known as polyclinics, the rollout of the HPV vaccine involved, you know, media broadcasts, public sensitization training, parent-teacher association meetings, run by a team of immunization nurses that were specially appointed to inform the public about the HPV vaccine. And so this atypical decision to implement a school-based vaccination program was actually modeled after international research that suggested that this was the most effective method of targeting adolescents before they became sexually active and ensuring that there would be the uh, completion of the multi-dose vaccine. But, you know, through my research, many Barbadian parents and nurses I spoke with shared that this approach really overlooked things like the cultural politics around sex in Barbados, and it failed to engage and educate local communities, notably about HPV, right? It was just about marketing this vaccine in ways that were respectful of historical efforts at healthcare activism. And and this led to really low uptake rates of the vaccine to a lot of vaccine hesitancy, as the medical community would say. Uh, I think the second the second part of your question about suspicion uh, in my book, following Afro Barbadians, I'm, I'm offering suspicion as a vernacularized reframing of hesitancy. So there are multiple senses and understandings of suspicion throughout the book. As a, as a term itself, I was first introduced to it by one of these same Afro Barbadian nurses, and she, like many others, used this adjective suspicious to describe patients' feelings towards the vaccine. And I was so intrigued by this idea of suspicion. And I thought, you know, what is the relationship between suspicion and hesitancy? And and hesitancy was a term that I was using on recruitment flyers and that I was generally seeking to understand. That's what I knew at the time. So I was thinking, well, how are Barbadians invoking the term suspicion and what's its difference to hesitancy. And what I began to understand was that this definition of hesitancy really excludes the histories that suspicion encapsulates. So in order for me to write about suspicion, I had to understand and probe into the kinds of assumptions that were built into the term as well as about the term. And what I learned is that suspicion is a residue, right? It's it's an embodied affective relation that circulates and attaches to different political and socioeconomic and cultural formations that constitute the HPV vaccine, but much more than that, right? Longer histories of slavery and public health. And working within this tradition of transnational feminist 
work that is seeking to trace, quote unquote, um, the present and the afterlife of slavery to the past and to histories of colonialism, I'm trying to understand and offer a consideration of what it means to understand suspicion to what this vaccine as theory, but also as something empirical, as something that is very generative, but it's also very fraught. Um, and it's contagious because it's palimpsestic, right? It's living within bodies and histories of Afro-Barbadians in ways that are impossible to let go of. So just to kind of sum that up, I'm, I'm narrating suspicion as affective through my interlocutors rather than as an intentional form of resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that uh, description of, of suspicion. And throughout the book, you really bring in the voices of medical professionals, teens and young people, parents um, who are considering this HPV vaccine for their children. And that's something I know that people will really like about this book is you can really see you know, what people are saying to you about, um, about their thoughts. And so medical professionals and youth seem to understand parents' refusal of the vaccine through the idea of respectability and their discomfort with their children having sex. Um, but you found that parents' refusals or questionings of the vaccine were more complex. And so why were parents suspicious of the HPV vaccine that medical professionals weren't seeming to, to pick up on? Mm-hmm, yeah. So I, I can start by acknowledging that the marketing of this vaccine to mitigate women's risks of contracting HPV prior to the initiation of presumably heterosexual sex, unsurprisingly invited this circulation of cultural understandings and ideologies um, of gender that were questioning the vaccine's appropriateness for adolescent girls, right? And as you note, nurses and to some extent adolescents really seem to cling to this belief that parents' suspicions could be wholly explained through the politics of respectability. One example of this is that when the Ministry of Health eventually extended the vaccination program to boys, nurses claim that parents overwhelmingly accepted the vaccines for their sons. And for them, this therefore proved their point that the hesitancy was really all about respectability and women's bodies. And in chapter three, I'm talking about how we can't lose sight of the ways that well-established gendered ideologies in and of the Anglophone Caribbean state are such that women's sexuality and sex and its risks are policed by masculinity. So if we're conflating and subsuming these narratives of suspicion within a reputation and respectability paradigm, then we're really losing sight of these more insidious ideologies that are at play and the very complex understandings and manifestations of respectability that Caribbean theorists um, have have theorized about extensively and that parents brought to their elaborations about suspicion. So what I found was that Afro-Barbadian parents were drawing associations between the vaccine and colonial tropes of female hypersexuality and respectability politics. So they weren't reducing or attributing their suspicions simply to a concern that their children would have sex if they got the vaccine. 
right? But essentially, they were denying the simple adherence to respectability and gesturing instead to the way that the vaccine's promotion disconcertingly reproduced stereotypes and pathologies around Black women's bodies and hypersexuality in the Caribbean. And this is ultimately what suspicion indexes. Yeah, thank you for that. And you really go through and you lay out this history as well of of Black women and uh, their sexuality, you know, throughout, uh, through from slavery and, and colonialism in, in Barbados as well. That's, that's really beautifully done to contextualize that. Thank you. So you also bring yourself into the book and you discuss in the beginning how people were suspicious of you. And I thought about this, I thought this really might be kind of a, a fear of, of many ethnographers, right? That, that this kind of suspicion could hamper the building of rapport and, you know, building trust. It, it can make it really difficult to have to make those relationships with people. And so, but you use people's suspicion of you as a lens into this multifaceted nature of suspicion around the HPV vaccine. And so I thought that was a, a, a great, you know, way to kind of flip that in a way and use it as a lens to think about, well, what's, what's actually going on here? And so why were people suspicious of you? What did you make of it? And how did you navigate the suspicion as an ethnographer? Uh, there's so much to say here. <laughs> so earlier when I mentioned that there were multiple senses of suspicion, um, this was one of the other manifestations of suspicion. And I think that while it was nurses who introduced me to the term suspicious at first, suspicion was definitely something that I felt, but I didn't necessarily articulate it as such or with that word. So I was thinking that people were skeptical, distrustful, um, concerned, right? Um, I wasn't thinking about suspicion. I wasn't thinking about it as affective. It was only after I returned to Toronto uh, and my then supervisor encouraged me to begin writing about what was lingering, right? They encouraged me to reflect on what I couldn't stop thinking about from my time in Barbados. And it was then through this like reflective writing process that I realized it was suspicion that was attaching to me as a researcher, this, you know, a different manifestation of this affective suspicion that I was tracing in relation to the vaccine. And this suspicion attached to me specifically as a Trinidadian researcher. Uh, you know, I, I laughed to myself when you said that people might be fearful as, a, as an ethnographer of how, you know, what rapport they would build with folks because I was very naive going in to Barbados thinking that with the way I looked as a Black woman with my Trinidadian accent, I would have an affinity of sorts with the Afro-Barbadians whom I was interviewing. And I quickly got a reality check, right? And I share the story um, of being called a Trinidadian rather than a Trinidadian in the book. And this is a nickname that alludes to some of the politics that really characterized the Barbadian landscape at the time that I was conducting research. And I think to a significant extent uh, continue to today pertaining to an influx of intra-regional and international corporations and interests and investments on the island, including many Trinidadian takeovers, as someone said to me, of things like banks and supermarket chains and so on. And so 
you know, the suspicion was not at all or perhaps at all different um, from the affective resonances of suspicion that were attaching to the vaccine, right? So like the suspicion that attached to the vaccine and to technologies like smartphones that captured adolescent sex, there was a flurry of sex scandals in the Caribbean around the time that I was doing my research and people were very concerned about cell phones in schools Suspicion was also attaching to the state's claims to biopolitics around biometric screening machines. Um, This suspicion towards me and other Caribbean nationals has a longer history. And the affective nature of suspicion allows us to see that, how it travels across time and place and attaches to different groups and communities and technologies in ways that both foster forms of relationality and divide. So toward the end of the book, you write, and I'm going to quote you from page 45, you write, quote, if hesitancy and suspicion toward the HPV vaccine were seen not as the endpoints of, not not the endpoints, but the beginnings of better health care organizing and organizing in Afro-Caribbean communities in Barbados, new possibilities for biomedical campaigns and the transformation of community health outcomes might emerge. And I thought that was so interesting um, and again, given this moment that we're in, because you say if, if the vaccine was not seen at the end point, but the beginning of better health care, um, because, you know, we're, we're told, you know, vaccine, vaccine, as if that's the end. And so I interpreted this that as if, if all roads lead, if all roads for protection only lead to the vaccine, then this forecloses these other possibilities for health care. And so I wondered what you were thinking about, about these new possibilities for uh, community health and and what opens up for us if the vaccine is not necessarily the end point. Yeah, so so suspicion uh, suspicion is not necessarily the end point, um, and by that I'm, I mean that I think suspicion is inviting us. It's it's not a no. Suspicion is inviting presence. It's thinking together. It's working together. It's inviting accountability for racialized violence and non-innocent histories of medicine and and at times public health that have gone unaccountable for too long. So suspicion is asking questions of us, right? And this is where I differentiate it from an act of resistance. Suspicion might lead to resistance or refusal, but in and of itself, it is different from refusal, right? It's asking us to turn to what our entanglements in relations of technoscience and medical injustice and it's it's asking us to think about a different story of how we came to these very curative logics of care that we're immersed within and and there are places for those but that should not be the totality of what we think of when we think of care so you know perhaps suspicion is offering us a way of understanding Afro-Barbadian, and if we're reading transnationally, Afro-diasporic possibility, like other ways of being and living Afro-diasporic Blackness than as defined by or in relationship to really racist constructions in science. So I'm seeing it as an invitation, like a curiosity to think about and think beyond, um, kind of right where I started, scientific claims to truth and objectivity. And this curiosity about science, about knowledge making, about vaccines and technologies 
like suspicion, um, reveals them to be sites of possibility rather than foreclosed truths. So this might look like a move toward what Barbadian parents were asking of the Barbadian state and of their providers, right? A different type of healthcare that transparently engages with local communities' concerns through things like participatory action research and a type of public health that critiques the inadequacy of biomedical models of care for local populations, for Afro-Caribbean women in particular, especially as it relates to the politics of sexuality. And, you know, I should note that there are forms of healthcare and community organizing that are precedents for this, right? Both in Barbados in terms of Caribbean feminist healthcare organizing through groups like the Women in Development Unit in the 1970s. And of course, if we look transnationally through groups like the Panthers and the clinics that they organize and develop to serve communities who were directly negatively impacted and neglected by the state's forms of quote-unquote care. And I think that if we don't attend to these considerations that suspicion is offering us, it's ultimately diminishing the efficacy of public health efforts and it's doing nothing to build the public's trust in its government institutions. And the last thing I'll say is that as I emphasize in the book, despite its generativity, suspicion is is very fallible and fraught, right? Um, so should suspicion only lead to refusal rather than an acceptance by public health institutions of the necessary work it's doing to unsettle racism, um, then it might just only lead to low uptake rates of the vaccine in places like Barbados. And then we have to question what this means for the very Afro-Barbadian teens whose parents are seeking protection for them through their suspicion, right? So it's, 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 it's fallible, it's fraught, and it's generative at the same time. Mm-hmm. That is really fascinating. Um, so I'm going to take you up, I guess, on when you were talking about this African diasporic way of living and being, because I thought... Um, you know, your book is obviously about Barbados and the Caribbean, um, but its themes certainly resonate in the United States and particularly at the current moment and the very public attention that was paid, for example, in the United States to African-Americans and the history of our fraught relationship with healthcare systems. And so I wondered, and that was, this was around, of course, the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. And so there was all of these uh, news stories about, you know, African American uh, distrust in the in the health system and why that might lead to lower rates of of uptake with that vaccine. And so I wondered if your analytic of suspicion applies to other cases outside of the Caribbean. Can it help us understand the resonances that attach to health interventions outside of Barbados, um, such as in the United States? Hmm. I mean, can it help us understand distrust that exists in the U.S. toward medical technologies by communities of color? Absolutely. Um, But not only is suspicion, as articulated here, specific in relation to the HPV vaccine, but but also to Afro-Barbadians. So I think this this is a two-part answer. So first, I want to insist on why... uh, a deeply local framing of suspicion is so important, right? Um, in the lineage of transnational feminist work and also Caribbean anthropological work, so I'm thinking specifically of the work of Michelle Rob Trio here, 
place is really so significant to analyses of events. And this book is offering a shift from looking at Afro-Barbadians or hesitancy in Barbados to looking from Afro-Barbadian suspicion, right? Looking from their corporeal traces and the unsettling truths that these affects of suspicion hold and, and the way they call our attention to what we need to do to make our relations of care more accountable. But the second part of this response is that this is not to say that we can't think with suspicion in other contexts. So, you know, Jackie Alexander and Chandra Mahanti famously note that transnational feminist lenses encourage us to ask questions that are location specific, but not bound in ways that are not attempting to flatten or neatly apply suspicion to different contexts. Because I think that, in effect, what this can do is neutralize its potency or significance and its possibilities for Afro-Barbadians. So an example that I think might be useful here is that in the Caribbean and in the U.S., we're seeing currently the emergence of music, um, and music, uh, musical artists creating pro-vaccine songs and anthems in relation to the COVID-19 vaccine. So in places like Trinidad and Barbados, this is true in terms of soca songs that are encouraging the population to get vaccinated with really infectious melodies and beats. And then in the U.S., you might have seen this. Um, an example of this is the remix of uh, Juvenile's 1990s uh, Back That Thing Up which was remixed to vax that thing up. And so he did this as part of a campaign um, for the dating app BLK to encourage Black users in particular to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And the reception to Juvenile's remix was less than positive. You know, all over YouTube, people are commenting, you know, you're a sellout and, and things of the sort. And I think that this is a good example because what suspicion shows us is that for those for whom ambivalence might lead them to questioning or delaying or refusing vaccines like the COVID-19 vaccine, popular acceptance of the vaccine by someone like Juvenile is not enough to address hesitancy because it is hesitancy that needs to be addressed, right? What I mean by that is it's the claims that lie beneath suspicion that are asking to be addressed. And so what suspicion in the context of the HPV vaccine in Barbados has taught me is that attempts at increasing compliance that consistently fail to acknowledge the historical reasons for people's hesitancy, whether that be in relation to widespread government distrust um, across the African diaspora, will do little to increase racialized people's trust in the state, let alone alleviate, you know, so much of what we're seeing today, right? Pandemic eugenics that disability activists have been calling attention to the blacklisting of African countries in the name of public health. And of course, the all too unacknowledged necessity of global vaccine equity. So I think as we just discussed, suspicion is gesturing to, more transparent forms of healthcare promotion. And that definitely has a transnational resonance and relevance. Um, you know, while recognizing the deep and warranted discomfort and injustice that's embedded within industry-funded healthcare and education and research. 
Yeah, thank you. That is so so important. And so in the in the book, you know, as you you explained, you offer this very layered, nuanced understanding of suspicion to vaccines, where you are saying, you know, it's not irrational this suspicion, but it's embedded within histories of slavery and exploitation, suspicion of the government and neoliberal policy desires to protect children, you know, it's very complicated. And so I wondered about the reception of these findings. Have you shared these findings with others, for example, in your in your classrooms where you where you teach? Um, and have how have students or others responded to them? Thanks for this question. I think I've I've both taught about suspicion in my own undergrad and grad courses through articles that were published prior to the book. And more recently, given guest lectures about the book and students in it, in particular, their most immediate engagement with the work, not just not just students, I should say, people's most immediate engagement with the work over the past year has predictably been in relationship to the COVID-19 vaccine and pandemic. And it's interesting because when I started this research, the term vaccine hesitancy was not at all popular, not part of our everyday lexicon, right? Ten years later, the whole world is throwing around the term. And I think um, I'm quick to caution folks against a presumed familiarity with this concept and, and, and particularly suspicion because not only is it vaccine specific, but location specific and population specific. And this was something that I had to do as well as a researcher throughout the research process, especially interviewing middle-class Barbadians. One of the reviewers comments for the book in the first round was asking me, how do I reconcile similarities in comments from Afro-Barbadians and white middle-class Americans who similarly are on about how they don't trust Big Pharma, right? And my response to them and to students and others whose entry point into these conversations about suspicion is naturally to think about their own experience or the experiences of those around them in North America is that when we're using transnational feminist theory to trace suspicion and to, to attune to the particularities of Barbados and the spaces within which these middle-class Barbadians live and to trace the suspicion across time, what we're doing is we are foregrounding the resonances of plantation slavery, right, for thinking through issues of force and reproduction and flesh and refusal. And this is necessary, um, you know, to, to think about the nuances that might be overlooked if, if, a, if a familiarity is overassumed, right? Like if we, if we assume that we understand hesitancy because it manifests wherever we live and we think suspicion is the same. And so it's important for me to emphasize this when I share these findings um, with students, especially it's, it's in many ways amazing that there's such an accessible entry point for folks to this work. It, it's timely, right? That's a phrase that I often hear. My goal is always to end sharing about my work with a methodological conversation about my work, about students' work, essentially that how we come to think about and research and inquire about an event really matters in terms of knowledge production and in terms of um, paying tribute to those with whom we are in conversation and whom we have learned from.
right? Like suspicion is not my theorization. Suspicion was offered to me by Afro-Barbadians. That's really, um, that's really interesting. And so um, we've come, I guess, to that, to the end, and we usually end with a question about what's next for you. And so now that suspicion is out into the world, are you working on any new projects? Um, do you have any new ideas that you're, you know, that you're, you're churning or any new initiatives that you're, that you're beginning? Yes, I'm very done with vaccine hesitancy. I, I tried to get away from it actually when I uh, started my PhD and then just kind of got roped back into it. You know, they say it, the, the topic doesn't let go of you. And, um, but now I think we've let go of each other and I'm ready to move on. And I just um, recently began the initial stages of a new project on diabetes and art and the gender dimensions of risk in Barbados again. So I'm collaborating with Dr. Tanya Haynes from the Institute of Gender and Development Studies at the University of West Indies Cave Hill campus on what we hope is going to be an interdisciplinary study that's combining arts-based methodologies and archival research and feminist theory to understand the gendered and racialized risk factors for type 2 diabetes on the island. And we came to this because sugar is such a major contributor to Barbados's um, emerging epidemic of type 2 diabetes And this is a distinction that has won the country, the colloquial phrasing or title, um, amputation capital of the world, because of its really high incidence of diabetes-related amputations. So, you know, we see in the literature that, in in the humanities literature, that historians have made the connection between sugar in, in citizens' diets and the nutritional brutality that's associated with slavery. Um, but it this is not sufficiently studied or understood in, in the scientific literature and through a public health perspective. So we're really excited to try to bring this perspective to bear on the literature and, and the practice of public health and policy. So that's what's, um, that's what's going to be next. That, that, that sounds like a really important and very powerful project. And so best wishes in, in carrying it out and on embarking on this new, this new research journey. Thank you so much. So I've been speaking with Dr. Nicole Charles, the author of the book, Suspicion, Vaccines, Hesitancy, and the Affective Politics of Protection in Barbados, published by Duke University Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.